Thank you for that prayer. In light of that, who's your president? That's been a major concern, hasn't it, since uh, the November election? And it exploded into a major confrontation this week in Washington, D.C. As the Capitol building, home to the Senate and the House of Representatives, was stormed by the supporters of President Trump. Now, contrary to popular opinion, this is not the first or even the second time that the Capitol building has been attacked. Those who enjoy history know that in 1814, the British, we were at war with them, um, in, uh, what was the war? The War of 1812. <laughs> That's a really hard one to remember, guys. War of 1812. Okay. So anyway, it was 1814, and the uh, British took Washington, and after having plundered the uh, Capitol building, they then set on fire the uh, Library of Congress, uh, which was housed at that time in the Capitol building. And then on July 2nd, 1915, a German infiltrator set uh, a bomb off uh, on the, in the Senate area of the Capitol building. And then, uh, do we have any Puerto Ricans here? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, <clears throat> in 1954, on March 1st, the Puerto Rican nationalists opened fire on the, uh, in, in the House of Representatives on the congressmen there and wounded five congressmen. 1971, it was the Weather Underground, the leftist movement, in protest against the uh, Vietnam War that also set off a bomb below the uh, Senate chamber. Uh, and then on November 7th, 1983, now I realize some of you are not that old, but m many of us are at least from that age on. And in, in 1983, leftist Marxists set off a bomb in the... Um, next to the Senate chamber that actually blew out the wall of the Senate chamber. Uh, so this infiltration this past week is not the first or second uh, of the attacks on that Capitol building. In 2020, all we have to do is look back over that anarchy ruled uh, pretty much all of last Summer, buildings were burned, including a church. Police were attacked, looting and rioting all through Washington. The rioters defaced the Lincoln Memorial, many buildings and monuments all around the National Mall uh, as well. There, was, there were fires that were set all around the White House grounds. They destroyed uh, Secret Service, police, and fire department vehicles. And that occurred in at least 16 other major U.S. cities as well. They endured the wrath of the anarchists. So the events of this past week simply continued an anarchy that 
had gone on all year, and really, if you think about it, for the past eight years, and we could really go back to the beginning of this country, which the British at least considered anarchy. Uh, so, how should Christians respond when we find ourselves in the midst of this controversy and anarchy that is marking our nation right now? Well, I think we should respond the same way that Christians have for the past 2,000 years. We go to the scriptures, we look to see what the scriptures say, and we begin to think like members of the kingdom of God rather than of the kingdoms of this world. Let our minds be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we present ourselves as living sacrifices unto God, holy and acceptable to him. That is how we should be responding. That is the way that we should be thinking. Romans 12.1 calls Christians to be dead people who have been made alive in Christ. To think from that perspective. We are sacrifices who have been made alive, who have been made holy, and who live in ways that please and honor God because of God's mercies and because of God's grace. Our text this morning clarifies for us the relationship between Christians and the church and the world and the governments of this world. It doesn't address all the issues that the church faces or that we as individuals face when it comes to government, but it is a very good starting point if we understand what this text is talking to us about. It will help us as we interact with our government and with the rulers of this world in a larger way. So let's consider the theme from this passage. Presenting yourself as a sacrifice means honoring God-given authority. And each of those words we're going to see are, are very important. But if we're presenting ourselves, remember that's what Romans 12 has told us that we are supposed to be doing, we are to present ourselves as a sacrifice. So if we are presenting ourselves as a sacrifice, what does that mean when it comes to our interaction with the government? And Paul tells us here that it means honoring God-given authority. Romans 13 addresses the question of how we as individual Christians and how the church as a whole should be responding in certain circumstances, which we will discuss as we go through this. So let's examine what this text has to say in our current situation. And there are seven points that, that Paul makes as we work through this passage. And so we're going to work through those. And the first one is, <clears throat> Paul points out that those with a renewed mind understand the image of God. We understand that you and I are created in the image of God. Therefore, since we are created in the image of God, we are to think and respond in this world as those who are reflecting the character and the nature of God. This passage makes little sense if we do not connect it 
to what happens in what is said in chapter 12. And chapter 12 makes no sense unless that is founded on chapters 1 to 11. We've been trying to make that point over the past several weeks. Now, Sean was supposed to preach today, um, and he would have been preaching on the last verses, verses 17 to 21 of chapter 12. But since their son had uh, a fever, and they took him to the doctor, and they did a COVID test, he hasn't been said to have COVID, but they are quarantined until that test comes back. So God, in his sovereign understanding, knew that we needed this passage to be preached this week. (laughs) So we come to this, and we look at it, and we say, what have we been learning from chapter 12, how we as Christians should be living? We are members doing ministry as mission because we are presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice because of the mercies of God, because those mercies are what we see in Romans 1 to 11. We are to do so as we let love flow out of us. And then we are to care for the body, to minister to the body, even those who within the church harass us or persecute us. That's what we've seen so far. And it all flows out of this relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ, who has taken the sin that we have committed, buried it at the cross, then raised us up to this newness of life, given us his Holy Spirit, adopted us into his family so that we might live in him in the midst of a lost world and then share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so they too might have the same freedom that we have in Christ. You can't take this passage out of that context. This is not a passage on the doctrine of the church and government. To do that, you have to look at the whole Bible. The whole of the Old Testament, Jesus and the Gospels, the book of Acts. We see many examples of how Christians or how believers were to interact with the world. And not all of those turned out really well, did they? As a matter of fact, our Lord was crucified by the governments, both the governments of the Jews and the government of Rome. So how do we make sense of Paul's opening statement in verse 1? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is the same Paul, by the way, who was also known as Saul. And you remember Saul in the book of He was a government representative who oversaw the stoning of Stephen, the first church martyr. And then he tore Christian families apart, imprisoned many of them, killed some of them. And he was responsible for that. And then after Paul became a Christian, by the time that Paul is writing the book of Romans, he has already been stoned. 
He has also been imprisoned and he has been beaten many times by those governments that he is saying here, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Paul is not writing from some ivory tower someplace. The church to whom he is writing, the church in Rome, had seen the Jews kicked out of Rome for a period of at least 12 years by the emperor. Many of the members of the church in Rome were slaves. Slaves who who were being beaten by their masters, treated unkindly by their masters in many cases, by the backing of the governments. And then the Jewish believers in Rome, they were very familiar with the fact that the Jews had been at war, not physically at war, but had been struggling with the Roman government who was constantly trying to send some kind of idols into the temple. And hundreds, even perhaps thousands of Jews had been crucified because they had stood against those rulers when they tried to bring those idols into the temple. And that's the context in which Paul is making this statement in our text. Let every person be subject to governing authority. So we need to to understand what Paul is saying and what he's not saying when it comes to this passage. Much of the Old Testament has an interaction with foreign governments, foreign ruling authorities. And the Bible cheers those who oppose those governments that fight the enemy armies, or even that oppose the false rulers in Israel and in Judah. And now, Paul is telling them to be subject to the governing authorities? Was he crazy? Had he forgotten all of that? That's why we need to read these seven verses in light of what the rest of the Scripture states and the rest of the book of Romans is talking about. And to do that, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 1. All the way back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, we have a command that God gives to Adam and Eve, after he creates them, that they are to take dominion over the earth. We call this a dominion mandate. The dominion mandate that God has given to the human race And the dominion mandate set the place for authority, for rulers, for government rulers, and every other form of rulers that we have. And those rulers start in the home. The headship of the home, God gave to the male. The parents were the heads of the home over the families, over their children. And you can climb all the way up to the empire and the emperor who heads that empire. Everything in between, that ruling grows out of this dominion mandate that God gave in Genesis chapter 1. Now, Paul begins this passage by saying, 
let all souls. Now our translation says, let every person. Paul wrote, let all souls, which are persons. We are persons if we have souls. But the reason Paul used that term instead of just saying humanity, using anthropos, man, mankind, the reason he used the term souls is to take us back to Genesis 1 and 2, where God created Adam and made him a living soul so that all human beings are created by God as living souls who are created in the image of God, the imago Dei, the image of God. Every living soul is in the image of God. And therefore, this mandate that God has given at the beginning flows out of the fact that we as human beings recognize that we are, first of all, under the authority of God and then under the authorities that God has placed in the world, in the institutions that he has placed in this world. And that's Paul's second point. You see, the second point is that those with a renewed mind understand the instituted authority. The instituted authority, no authority of any government or any individual at all, no, none of that comes out of that person themselves. All authority is instituted by God. God is the one who, to Adam and Eve, gave the right of dominion. In other words, Adam and Eve weren't created with authority. The authority that God gave them is delegated authority. God's authority delegated and given to them. They were given the right to rule by God and to rule for him as his regents. And that's why Paul writes at the end of verse 1, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. That means, for those of you who are students, your teacher, your teacher has dominion over you that is delegated by God to her. A police officer holds his authority from God. An emperor, president, vice president, a judge, a parent. All have a delegated authority instituted by God. And therefore, every soul, every human being that God has created, every soul is created in the image of God and must submit to the authorities of this world as they would submit to God. Remember the statement by Jesus? As he's in, in Matthew 28, as he is uh, preparing to ascend up into heaven, and he gives what we call the Great Commission. The basis of the Great Commission is go and make disciples, right? The basis of that is what? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What is Jesus saying there? 
Well, Jesus is the last Adam. The first Adam had received the dominion mandate, the, the authority to rule. To rule in this world, to rule over the things of this world. Jesus, as the last Adam, is receiving that dominion mandate. It is given to him, but it is all authority is given to him and to those whom he delegates for the new creation. Which means that when we live in this world, and we are part of this world, then we have a responsibility to submit to the authorities over this creation. But we also live in the new creation, in that new kingdom. And that has a greater authority than the kings of this world. So where they do not conflict, we submit. Where they conflict, we yield to the greater authority of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus responded to the question about paying taxes with, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Caesar can stamp his image on things that are going to pass away. He can put it on metal, or we can put it on paper with a picture of George Washington. Render to Caesar the things of this world, the things that are going to pass away, but render to God what bears his image. What bears God's image? You do. The souls, they bear the image of God. Render to God your life, your heart. Be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Without government, we have no sense of order in this world. God's authority is the only authority, but he has meted out that authority to the governors and the rulers of this world that is instituted by God for the good of humanity. Without the government, what do you have? You have anarchy. You have the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king in the land. There was no one to direct them. There was no one to guide them. When every person makes himself or herself the judge of what is good or what is bad, we have the anarchy that we saw this past summer and that we saw this past week. Each person setting themselves up to judge over what they perceive, whether rightfully or wrongly, as an injustice put against them. But when they do so, they steal the authority that is God's alone to give. You do not have that authority unless God gives it to you, and he gives it to you when you are a ruler that he gives. A parent has authority over their children because God has instituted that. The government has authority over the people that they govern because God has instituted government. And when you steal from God, there is a judgment that comes. 
Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay. And so, anticipating our question, Paul gives a third clarification for us. Those with a renewed mind understand the incurred judgment. Judgment is incurred when you violate, when you go against what God has ordered. A thief incurs punishment because they have stolen, and therefore they deserve punishment. And as I said a moment ago, if you steal from God, if you steal the authority that God has given to others, then you deserve judgment for that. At the end of verse 2, we read, and those who resist will incur judgment. But whose judgment? Whose judgment do we incur? Well, if God is the one who is the one who gives authority, he gives it to the governors, he gives it to the presidents, he gives it to the police, he gives it to the, you know, those institutions that have been given by him then ultimately, the judgment that's being incurred is a judgment from God. For God is the ultimate ruler. If you wrongly resist those who have authority over you, then you're resisting God himself. Do you believe that God is sovereign? If I was Paul, I would say, I know you do. <laughs> okay? We believe that God is sovereign. Then why were we so upset this week with all the stuff that happened? Do you not think that God has the ability to control who gets put into a position as president or not? Do you believe that God is able to make the Supreme Court say, oh yes, we are going to hear uh, these issues that have gone on. We're going to hear that. If God wanted to, he could wake them up in the middle of the night with a message saying, you better listen to those cases. Or he could have made something else happen. God is sovereign. If we believe that God is sovereign, then let's rest in that sovereignty. And God is sovereign. Who are we then to declare that whatever has happened is wrong? Those individuals who stormed the Capitol building may have felt that they had every right to protest what they saw as an unfair election. And yet they became the very form of corruption that they had protested against. And that is often, as has often been said, two wrongs don't make a right. And the same applies to us not just on that large macro level, but on every level of our life. If we speed, if we run a stop sign or a traffic, if we cheat on our taxes, no matter what justification you use, you incur judgment. You violated the law. And by violating that law, you have brought trouble on yourself. Now, let's... Put this back into its historical context as Paul is writing to these 
Christians in Rome. He knows about the government. He's already faced the government many times himself. His back is lacerated with the numbers of times that he has been beaten. His body still probably has protrusions on it from being stoned. This is not an individual who is just writing off the top of his head some pastor preaching a sermon. This is an individual who has faced the wrath of these governments. And so as he's writing to this church in Rome, Paul is very concerned because some of them are saying, we shouldn't pay these taxes because you know what they do with our taxes. All right? Paul is very concerned about them not paying the taxes. And the reason that he's concerned about them not paying taxes is that the government would crack down not just on that individual, but on the reason that that individual isn't paying taxes, which is the church. And so all of a sudden the church would come onto the radar of the empire and it would cut down on their ability to worship and to witness. So Paul is very concerned with that. By obeying the laws, they're keeping the church from coming under the radar of the government and therefore facing more persecution. Now that doesn't mean that the church or the individual Christians should never stand up against the evil of the government. Of course we should. We have ample examples in the Old Testament and the New Testament of that kind of disobedience to the government. The commands of the kingdom of God that outdo the demands of this world's government. Jesus is a higher authority than any king or president in the world. You see my tie? There's a reason why I'm wearing this tie. In case you can't read it, it says Daniel. Daniel refused to obey idolatrous laws. And he willingly faced lions because of it. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, the three Hebrew young men, told their king, their emperor, we will not bow to your idol. Even though they were going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin. They took a beating in order to obey God rather than man. However, where laws of God and the demands of those ruling do not compete, as Christians, we yield obedience or we face the judgment that we deserve. Fourth, those with a renewed mind understand the indignation of God. You incur judgment, you will face God's wrath. Don't misunderstand what the apostle is saying here. He is defining God-given authority of governments. He is not justifying the evil of those governments. As I shared earlier, Paul knew as well as anyone how evil a government could be and its abuse of power. In Isaiah chapter 10 and in Habakkuk 1, God tells the people of God that he uses 
the governments of this world to carry out his will, to carry out his purpose, and at times to punish those who have done wickedly. But then, in both of those passages, God goes on to explain that though he has given to the governments the right to punish, when those governments exceed what God has delegated to them, then God will punish them. In other words, they have authority that comes from God, but if they exceed what God has told them to do with that authority, God will hold them accountable. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Now, you may expect that that's going to happen today. No. Just like your own sin. What would happen if God punished you every time that you sinned? There's a grace of God. And that's extended to governments just as it is extended to you as an individual. I was talking with uh, Sean as he was preparing his message about the son of Sam. Those who are from New York, there's a history with the son of Sam. We would have had him killed. We would have, you know, destroyed this guy. Look at what he's done. And yet he became a Christian and he's been a strong witness. He remains in prison, rightfully so. God's grace is extended so that as God allows the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, So we too must be a people of mercy and of grace. But God is a consuming fire. And God will destroy the wicked. But still, we read in verses 3 and 4, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now we need to understand that to violate the laws of the land, if those violations of the laws of the land are not, you know, the laws of the land are not contrary to God himself and to what God has commanded, then we are sinning. We are doing wrong. And the government has the right then, the authority from God, to punish us for doing that wrong. And we need to keep in mind two things as we read this passage to understand what it is that Paul is saying here and what he's not. We've already said that he's not saying that we don't stand against the wickedness and the ungodliness of the the kingdoms of this world. But what is Paul telling this church in Rome and through them telling us? Paul wants the church to submit where it can to follow the laws of the land so that it lessens the attention of the government on the church. The saying goes, don't stir up the hornet's nest, you know. I understand that saying. 
When I was younger, my brothers and I were, we would often go up into the woods near us and we would uh, build tree houses and, you know, forts and that kind of stuff. So we were on the way back and I had a, a big hammer and we're coming back and I'm hitting trees, bang, you know, bang as we're going along. I hit this one tree, just a small, you know, sapling type of tree. There's a huge bee's nest in that tree. I ended up with over 100 bee stinks. I couldn't see out of my face. My body was swollen. Don't stir up hornet's nests if you don't need to. Don't poke the sleeping dog. That's what Paul is saying here. In those areas where, as Christians, we can submit to the government, then submit to the government. We may not always agree with their laws. We may think some of them are stupid. But submit, unless it is something that is contrary to the laws of God. The second thing that he wants us to do is to recognize that without government, there's chaos. The world needs order, and even evil governments provide that order. We need rules of the road, or we would all be in accidents all the time. It's bad enough that we have all the accidents that we do when there are rules of the road. We need taxes for the police force and for highway maintenance, for traffic controllers at airports, for clean water regulation. We get upset when trash is dumped around the cemetery, don't we? Why don't these people clean it up and all that kind of stuff? Well, the government says that they're supposed to, and there are fines if they don't, if they ever get caught. When people break traffic rules, don't you go, where are the police now? And when we see someone litter on 86th Street, what, are they born in a barn or what? Hey, don't knock the people born in barns. Jesus was born in a stable, so come on. God gave government to civil authority so that they could keep civil order, just as he gave parents the right to maintain order in the home. God also delegated to rulers the right to enforce those orders. Without the fear of wrath, you have chaos and anarchy, and we saw that this summer, didn't we? When the government did not use its power, its authority, to enforce the law. As God's servants... Rulers keep individuals from taking vengeance for themselves. They keep society from disintegrating into chaos if they use it wisely. But there's a fifth thing that Paul wants us to understand in terms of this. <clears throat> Those with a renewed mind understand the indicted conscience. Your conscience is indicted when you do something wrong. It tells you, 
you're the man. You are the woman. Remember Nathan and David, right? Nathan comes in and he tells David this sob story about, you know, this single sheep and the guy that owns lots of sheep, but he takes the single sheep and all that kind of stuff. And when David gets angry, because David is the judge, David is the king, he is the ruler who is to mete out justice, Nathan points at him and says, you're the man. You're the one that deserves the wrath that you just said should go towards that person. You are the one. Verse 5, Romans 13, 5, points out that truth. It says, therefore, one must be in subjection, subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of the conscience. Now, let's look at two things here. First, remember I said that the judgment was God's judgment. That the wrath was God's wrath, even though it's carried out even by an evil government, it's still God's judgment. But he says, that should not be the major motivation for why you do what is right. It shouldn't be simply to avoid the judgment. The conscience itself is not always a good indicator of what is right and wrong. But it is an inbred, inbred guilt producer. Psychologists and psychiatrists in our culture have been trying to eliminate the conscience, trying to make people not, you know, get over their conscience and, and bury that. It doesn't work. The conscience is inbred. God has placed that in all of us. Let's go back and read Romans chapter 2. The conscience is there. You cannot, you can, you can try to squelch it, you can suppress it, but the conscience will always pop up here or there. It's not a perfect indicator of right and wrong, but it is an indicator that at least you have done something wrong. Jesus proved that when he said that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. In other words, they use the cover of darkness to do what is wrong because they know that that's wrong. You know, most of the time this summer, you had protests during the day that were generally peaceful. But under the cover of darkness is when you had the rioters and the looters. Why? Because they knew what they were doing was wrong. And so, under the cover of darkness, they would do the wrong. Just like Jesus said. Now they knew that for two reasons. First of all, because their conscience told them that what they were doing was wrong. They knew that they should not be looting a store. They shouldn't be breaking uh, a window. They shouldn't be burning a car. They, 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 in the depths of their heart, they knew that that was wrong. That's one reason. But most of them did it in the dark because they did not want to be caught. They were afraid of the judgment that would come, of the punishment, if they were caught. And it's easier to hide who you are in the dark than it is during the light. So their consciences indicted them, but their behavior was primarily done in an attempt to escape judgment. 
Christians work differently according to what Paul says here. He says, yeah, there, there's a danger of judgment. There's a danger of punishment that's going to come against you. But that should not be the main reason why you don't do what's wrong. You want to have a clear conscience before God. You want to be able to know that what you are doing is honoring and glorifying to God. The Holy Spirit who lives in us lets us know when we're going against what God has designed, what our Savior Jesus Christ has saved us from, and what the Holy Spirit is doing so that we live righteously. And so we place ourselves in submission to the government to glorify God more than we do to avoid punishment. But Paul's not done yet. He has a sixth explanation. That those with a renewed mind understand the instruments of God. Now, you've got to follow me on this, right? What's he talking about, the instruments of God? We understand that all governments, as we have said, receive this delegated authority from God, right? Therefore, God alone has the right to punish, and so the the judgments that come, the punishments that come against people are the authority of God and the judgments of God. However, Paul doesn't want Christians to see government as some sort of mechanical institution. Governments are run by people. Those people are God's instruments for carrying out God's purpose. Listen to how Paul describes that in verse 6. He says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. The authorities that are carrying out this punishment, those authorities are instruments of God, ministers of God. You see, in verse 4, Paul twice calls those individuals who are the rulers, who are carrying out God's authority, he calls them deacons, diakonos, that they are serving God. They are servants of God. But here in verse 6, he uses a different term. He uses a, a, a term that the Hebrews pretty much used only for priests and Levites who are serving in the temple of God. It's an interesting use of that term. In other words, what Paul is saying is the whole earth is God's temple. And those who serve are serving in God's temple. We can go back again to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You know, as, as, as Adam is, is given the authority or the, the priesthood, and when we studied through Genesis, we talked about the fact that the terms that are used in Genesis 2 to describe what, what uh, Adam is doing are terms of priesthood. All right? So, so Adam, in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, was a temple. It was where God came to meet with the people that he created. Okay? That's what a temple, that's what it's all about. And so Adam using that delegated authority within the temple as a priest was then to name the animals, to take dominion 
over those animals. Even when they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were still image bearers of God. They still carried that same dominion mandate. They still had the responsibility of reflecting God's character, God's nature in the midst of the world so that people would learn to worship God rightly. And what Paul is saying here is that no one acts in this world apart from the glory of God. That means that all of those who are those government leaders are priests unto God. They are there so that people understand how to live for the glory of God. That's their job. That's why God delegated authority to those government leaders. And that's why God can judge them so harshly by casting them into hell when they do not reflect his glory in their ruling. They are false priests. They are wicked priests. And therefore, they will be judged as such. They are false representatives of God's glory and God's grace in the midst of the world when they act in ways that fail to reflect his character and his nature. Finally, Paul brings us to a conclusion of this, that those with a renewed, a renewed mind understand the instructions for life. You see, in those first six verses, Paul has really been giving us a theology of the church and government, helping us to see what underlies the reason why we should obey. But in verse 7, he tells us that we should obey what we should obey. And what he does in this is he brings this whole thing down in one fell swoop into a narrow understanding of what he is describing in these verses. So let's look at verse 7. Very practical application. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Christians are not to follow government dictates that contradict the truth of God's word. And that's why Paul limits what he's saying when he says that we are to submit to our government. He's limiting it here. He's not saying everything the government says you're supposed to do, but those things that the government says that you're supposed to do, whether it's traffic rules and regulations, whether it's on-side street parking and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Whether it's how you take care of your trash. Those kinds of things that the government is doing to help keep the culture, the, the community in good stead, you need to obey. You need to submit to that. And he's narrowing down what he's talking about here. Christians are to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. When it comes to the local or federal governments, Christians are, in other words, to be the best citizens. We let our light so shine so that people will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. You know, the early apologists in the second uh, century, second and third centuries, like 
Justin the Martyr, Tertullian, they wrote apologias, that is, defenses of the faith. They wrote them to the emperors. And one of their main arguments to the emperors is, why are you killing off the Christians? They're your best citizens. They don't steal. Okay? They, they, they don't lie. They don't break the laws. They're your best citizens. Why in the world are you killing them? Well, we know the reason they're killing them, the same reason they're killing them in China, the same reason that they are beginning to suppress us here in the United States, because their deeds are evil. And the church shines a light on that. But the argument that Justin the Martyr and Tertullian are making are that Christians are model citizens. We aren't caught up in all the garbage of the world. We aren't caught up in all of this, you know, the, the, the violent protests and, and those kind of things. Why? Because we're citizens of another country. We are the citizens of the kingdom of God. And since God rules not only over the kingdom of God, but over the kingdoms of this world, that's what happened in Revelation chapter 11. You sing in the, the Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. But the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And so we see that the kingdoms of this world are under the rule of God. And he will take care of them if they violate his rules. But we are to live in this world as if we were already in heaven. That's what it means to live as members of the kingdom of God. We go to, to Romans 12, verse 8. Right? Let love be without dissimulation. Let, let love be unhypocritical. As we live in the midst of this world, we live as though we already have entered into heaven and we're living for the glory of God. And since in heaven, people cannot violate God's laws and God's rules, if they do so here and they tell you to do so, you won't do that. But if in the other areas of life, they tell you to do something, and by doing so, you are helping and assisting, you are loving your neighbor as yourself, then you are to do that. And if it means that they're taking 56% of your paycheck in taxes, we had a whole revolution for less than a percent. We were to pay taxes. Live as though this world is already the kingdom of God wherever and whenever you can. Live at peace with all as much as you can. Uh, that's what we see at the end of Romans 12. Live at peace as much as is possible for you to do so. And that's what this text is telling us. And so I ask you, in conclusion, are you living in this present life with the same heart that you will live in eternity. Because if you are, then you will glorify God in how you live and how you respond to our government.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this word from your word. It truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the midst of all the confusion that's going on and all the statements that are being made, even by people in the church, we have here instructions that give us guidance. Not in every aspect, but certainly in those that will impact how we respond in the confusion of what's going on in the anarchy of this nation. Guide us who have Christ within. Guide us by the Holy Spirit to live for the glory of God as though we are already in heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.